You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. together verses 15 through 20. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we begin. Our Father, we are here before your word now as your people, and we long to hear your voice in the pages of your word it is in this text that you, script, you speak to us. We pray that the Spirit of God today may be our teacher and not the mere voice of a mere man. Lord, that you would instruct us today and that your word would be the ruling and dominating effect in our hearts, in our minds, and thus in our lives. We ask that you'd be glorified here and pleased to do this and so much more in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a little bit of a word of testimony as we begin this morning. Before I got saved, I was a very greedy individual. And I mean I redefined greed. I set a new standard for greed. Uh, money was not only my God, it was my, uh, I counted money, I loved money, I made money, I worked for money, everything I did was for money, everything, and I, everything that I did, with bottom line, was for the almighty do- dollar. That is the true American idol. The American idol is not a singer, the American idol is the almighty do- dollar, and that is what we worship in this country. That is what I worshiped before I became a believer. And I think that at some point, the closest that I can indicate that it all started was when I was about 13 or 14 years old and I learned how to push a lawnmower. And in learning how to push a lawnmower, I quickly realized that that could become a cash cow for me because people needed that done every week. And I could make almost $20 an hour. This was in the 1980s, almost $20 an hour mowing lawns. I could show up. I could mow somebody's lawn. People would pay me 20 bucks after I was done, after 45 minutes or an hour's worth of work. And I did this every week. And by the time I was 14, I was mowing between 7 and 10 lawns a week, every week, earning $20 an hour, loving every minute of it. And I worked more and more. I rode my bike into Sandpoint and uh, rode around town and mowed lawns. And people supplied the gas and the lawnmower. And my uh, $20 bills started to stack up in a hurry. And I took on a brand new interest in dead presidents, especially when their portraits were colored in shades of green. And I started to learn who all the presidents were, who were on all of the money and their history and all of that. I was fascinated and fixated by it. 
But then during the winter months, the, the funds would kind of run out a little bit. So when I was in the early years of high school, I took up the practice of selling candy when I went to school. So I would actually go down to the gas station and buy candy for um, their little five cent, uh, five cents per little Laffy Taffy is what they were and sour heads and jawbreakers. And then I would go to school and I would sell them for 100 percent of what 100% profit, and uh, that was quite a lucrative business. The teachers didn't mind it. I was able to set up shop on the bus, and I had the whole bus ride, and it sat in the front seat or close to it, and as people came on, I was selling candy out of my seat on the bus, and bus ride home was lucrative, and lunchtime, and kids knew that if they couldn't find me at my locker, they could come to me in detention hall, and there I would be sort of peddling my candy. And I made between 15 and $20 a day, on average, profit from selling candy, which paid for my lunch, Bought all my own school clothes, bought all my own school supplies, any amenity that I wanted, anything I wanted to do, I could do. I was making more money than I really had time to spend since I was a full-time student. And uh, one of the reasons that I did that was because I was a, a child of a single mother and my mom was working sometimes two jobs to barely provide for me and my sister. And I wanted to not be a burden to her. And the teachers didn't mind me doing it. Some of the teachers were actually my customers. They would, As long as they did it before class or after class, they were fine with it. Nothing illegal. Then after I, uh, later on in high school, I found that I could actually do something that was a bit more lucrative than selling candy. And no, it wasn't selling drugs. I didn't sell drugs. I never even did drugs. But I had an after-school job. And I found that I could trade my time for money. People would pay me money for my time. So I started taking early bird classes so that I could get out an hour before everybody else. And people used to, people still ask me, Jim, if you like sports so much, how come you never played sports in high school? And the answer is always the same. When I got out of high school, I was out of high school as soon as I could because if I took the early bird class, I could get out an, early, an hour earlier than everybody else. So I could actually be at a job by 2.30 in the afternoon. And most days of the week, I worked from 2.30 in the afternoon till almost 10 o'clock or after every night. And then I went to school, and I was at school by 6 or 6.30 in the morning in order to earn money. During the summer months, I never took a day off. Between my junior and my senior year that summer, I remember one stretch where I worked from 7.30 in the morning until almost midnight every single night for every single day for 21 days straight until my boss finally said, you're taking nobody else's shifts. You have to take a day off. I love to work. And you know why I love to work? Because I love money. My fixation with work really was a fixation of money. And I enjoyed working. Everybody knew if you had a day, every day off that was on the schedule, I would go to the people who were working and say, hey, you want that day off? I'll take your shift. And then I would lock it up, get that shift, and be able to work that whole day. I loved the money. I had a, a vehicle that I was purchasing, buying my own truck, paying, making all my insurance payments, buying all my own gas, paying my mom rent even, buying all my own school clothes still, and uh, still earning money, uh, more money than I could spend. I mean, when do you have time to spend money when you're working from 7.30 in the morning until after midnight every night? And the money just piled up like that. And one of the reasons that I did that was obviously because I, didn't, I loved the money, but I didn't want to be a burden to my mother either because I knew that how hard she was working to provide for me and my sister. And I wasn't a burden to her. In fact, I was lending her money at a very reasonable interest rate, I might add. And you laugh, but that is the truth. I loved the money. Now, at some point during all of that, when I was in high school, I got saved. I got saved. And like you, I found that some of the sins from my pre-Christian, pre-Christ life vanished overnight. Gone. Gone. No temptation, disgust for them. Other sins clung to me like a dirty garment. 
And greed was one of the sins that clung to me for years. And I found that slowly over the course of my high school, after I got saved and before I went to Bible college, I found that my priorities started to shift a little bit as I began to sort of change my focus from how much money can I make to thinking what might God demand of me for my life? And it never once occurred to me that he might demand my money. Never once came into my mind. So after high school, I went to Bible college and all the money that I'd saved up, I put down as a down payment on the first semester at Bible college. I went to Bible college and there, of course, I learned about giving from Matthew and First Corinthians and other books that we were studying in first year. I learned all about the Christian discipline of giving and the blessings that come with that and what God expects of us as Christians in the wise use of our resources for his glory and for his purpose. I learned all about that, but I didn't have any money to give. I was a Bible college student and I was washing my clothes in the shower with a laundry soap that I would bum off of friends because I did not have the 75 cents to use the washer and the dryer. And I hung my clothes up in my room to dry them. I had no money, so I never gave anything because I didn't have anything. And during the summer months, I would come back and I would work and I would save up money for Bible college. Never thought to give off of that money because, well, why would you give off of that money? That takes away from what you're saving up for Bible college, right? I mean, what fool would give money away when you're trying to save money for college? So I never thought of giving. Then during my third, second and third year, see, Deidre and I met when I was in first year, and she was a student with me. And then during my second and my third year, she was working a full-time job or close to it, earning money to pay off a student loan that she had from her mom and dad and a car loan that she had from her mom and dad. So she owed them a chunk of money. And during second and third year, by the time we were in third year, by the time I was in third year, I should say, Deidre and I knew that we were going to get married, we knew that that was the plan, but we were committed to paying off that loan so that when we didn't enter into marriage with a debt over our heads and make it that much more difficult. So we committed that before we got engaged, we would pay off that uh, student loan and that car loan that she had from her parents. So through second year and to third year, Deidre was working to make payments to her mom and dad. She was making payments and she would share with me how much she made and how much she paid her mom and dad. And I was doing the math and it wasn't adding up in my mind. And I said, where's all the money going? She says, well, of course, I'm tithing off it or giving off of it to the Lord. And I thought to myself, you know, if you didn't give it all away, you'd have that thing paid off by now because those are awfully small payments in my book. This is going to take a lot longer than I thought it was going to take. So we got out of third year. And during the course of third year, my frustration with her mounted because she was making much smaller payments than I thought she should have been making or could have been making if she hadn't been giving all of her money away. Now, she wasn't giving all of her money away, but she was giving away far more than I thought was called for, which was nothing. Because Annie was more than I would have called for. And it didn't make sense to me. Why, If you're trying to pay off a debt, why would you give away money that puts you that much farther behind in reaching your financial goals? It didn't make sense to me. Well, by the end of third year, I came to the conviction that when I got out of Bible college in April and I graduated from third year, when I got back to work, I came back to Sandpoint here to begin to work through that summer. And my intention was that I was going to earn money and then send it back to Deidre to help pay down the debt. So before I got back to Sandpoint, I made the commitment, I'm going to start giving off of what I make to the Lord. So I set a percentage in my mind and then I did what I used to do before I was a Christian. I started to keep track of everything that I earned and everywhere that it went and how much I was giving to the church or to other parachurch ministries. And this was in about the middle of April. And so that first check that I received for employment when I got back here after Bible college, I sat down, I did the percentage and I wrote out my check, which was the hardest Thing I think I have ever done in my life. And I gave it. 
And the second one was a little bit easier, but not much. And the third one was a little bit easier. And the fourth one was a little bit easier. And I started to keep track of how much I was giving to different ministries. And over the course of about four or five weeks, a radical transformation happened in my own heart. Because when I would get paid, the first thing that came into my mind was not how much can I keep and how much can I send to Deidre to pay down the debt. The first thing that entered my mind is how much of this goes to this ministry and I know of this need and I've got an envelope and a fundraising letter at home for this organization or for this missionary. That was the first thing that started to come into my mind. And then I realized it was like I woke up one day and I realized something radical has happened to me. I wasn't as concerned so much as how much money I was giving to Deidre to pay down the debt. I wasn't as concerned with how much I got to keep for myself. But the question that I started asking myself is how much of this do I get to give to the Lord? And I actually looked forward to the check as I would get it instantly do the math in my mind how much was going to the Lord and would actually be excited about the opportunity to drop that in the offering box or to send it away to a ministry. Well, five weeks after we, I got back here after Bible college, Deidre called me up. It was on about May 9th and she said, my mom and dad just forgave the loan. I don't have to pay it. I don't know it anymore. Because they want us to get married. They want me out of the house. <laughs> I, I kind of made up that last part. I was reading between the lines a little bit. Her father... My father-in-law actually shared with that with me years later, but I promised him I would never tell anybody that. So then I went three days later up and uh, proposed to Deidre. We were engaged. Now, you look at that story and I ask myself, did the Lord cause that debt to be forgiven because I had started to be faithful in my giving and honor the Lord with the first fruits of my increase? Now, that's possible. I think that's possible that that's how it worked out. Now, it may have happened that way anyway, even if I hadn't started giving. But I am thankful for this. I am thankful that in a wretched heart like mine, that God did a work of grace to loosen the grip of greed and covetousness that was still clinging from my unsaved days. Now, from my vantage point and my perspective, I look back on what I was like before and during Bible college and right after before God did that work and before He sort of set me free from that, I look back on it now and I realize that I had two problems. Now, before I got saved, my problem was covetousness and greed, which is what you expect from a pagan. You expect pagans to love money and to worship money and to be covetous and greedy. They don't know anything else. They can't do anything else. So that was just standard unsaved Jim Osmond. But afterwards, my problem was not greed because that was starting to lose its grip. But my problem really boiled down to a lack of belief. You see, even as a Christian, I did not believe that it was easier to meet my obligations and accomplish my goals and live off of less than 100% of my income. It didn't make sense to me that I could get farther ahead by living on less than, if, than I could if I lived on everything that I had. What fool, I thought, what fool gives away part of his money and expects to meet his goals quicker than if he kept all of his money. You ever thought like that? I thought like that. Basically, it boiled down to, I did not believe Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. I did not believe that by giving away my money that God would honor that. I did not really believe that in being faithful in that discipline, that God would bless that and that He would provide for all of my needs. If I give away my money, then we're going to be able to get married later. That's not the way it works out at all. We are in Philippians 4.19. In recent weeks, we've been looking at this text. It's a Paul's thank you 
to the Philippian church for sending him a financial gift to help out in his ministry with his imprisonment. And we've seen in recent weeks that giving is a personal involvement. It is a way of being personally involved in somebody's ministry. That's verses 15, or 14, 15, and 16. We saw in verse 17 that our giving is actually a profitable investment where God blesses the giver more than the person who receives it. And then in verses 18, we saw that giving is an act of worship. It is a, something pleasing to the Lord, an acceptable sacrifice, something that honors him. And today we're looking at verse 19 and verse 20. Verse 19 says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In verse 20, we're going to look at the promise of God to the giver. But then look at verse 21. Sorry, verse 19 is the promise of God to the giver. Verse 20 is the praise to God from the giver. Verse 20, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So verse 19, the promise of God to the giver. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice the context because this is one of those verses that's quoted out of its context all the time. We say to unbelievers or we say to nominal Christians or to Christians who are not disciplined and not diligent with their finances. They're not good stewards and they're not givers and they're facing financial difficulty. We say to them, hey, don't worry about it. Your God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Anything you need, God will supply it. But is that really whom Paul is talking to? Who's Paul talking to? Notice that that promise is given in the context of what? Giving. That promise is given to givers, specifically. Now, does that mean that God won't provide the needs of unbelievers or won't provide the needs of disobedient Christians? No, He does it all the time. But the promise is given to those who sacrificially, gracefully gave to the Lord out of their provisions to support the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I want you to know something. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about provision because my God will supply for all of your needs. That promise is given to givers in the context. It is God who supplies it. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. And God has the ability to provide all of the seed that you need for sowing and all of the bread that you need for eating. He has the ability to make all grace abound to you so that having given, you will also be supplied with everything that you need for every good deed because it's God who gives that. That promise is given to believers who give. This promise of provision is not given to all believers everywhere, no matter what. Sometimes God begins to cut back on your sustenance when you're not faithful in little. Jesus said, if you're faithful in little, I'll make you ruler over much. If you're faithful in little, you'll get more. But if you're unfaithful in little, God will take away what you have. I've seen this happen. Where somebody has much and they're not faithful with it, and then God just cuts it back. And they find themselves with less and less and less. And the principle is that when you're faithful with a little bit, God will give you more. Uh, George Mueller, the, the, and he used, did the orphanages over in England back in the 1800s, I think it was. It was 1800s. He once said, if in the things that God gives us, if we act as stewards and not as owners over the little that we've been given, then God will make us stewards over more. But the minute we begin to act as if we own it and not as if we're a steward of it, God will begin to take away what it is that he's given to us. The promise is that when we give, our God will supply for all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So who is it that does the providing? What does the text say? It's our God. Does does Congress do this for us? Does Wall Street do this for us? Is this the president's job? Is this part of what we elect our representatives to do? No. You would think that their job is to take it away. That's what they think their job is. 
Whose job is it to provide for us? It's our God who provides for all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the God that we're trusting in is not a God who has the supply but is unable to deliver it. Nor is it a God who has the supply and is able to deliver the supply to us, but he lacks the wisdom to know how to do it in the best way possible. The God that we serve and the God that Paul is describing is a God who has all of the riches of his supply. And he has the omnipotent, almighty ability to deliver anything that he knows that we need right to us. And he has the infinite wisdom to know exactly how it should be delivered to us for our best good and the timing with which all of those needs should be met. That is the God who supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He is an infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely powerful and infinitely rich God. That God supplies for all of our needs. And notice that Paul says he will supply. Not he might supply. Not he could supply. Not he should supply. Nor does he say, I hope he will supply. But he will what? He will supply. He will, in this future indicative indicating Paul had a confidence in it, it is going to happen. He's not simply saying, I wish this would happen or I hope this would happen. But Paul was able to say, I have absolute confidence that the God you serve, the God you worship, will provide for all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice a couple things at this juncture. Notice that Paul says God will supply for all of our needs and not all our wants. Now, isn't it true that you and I often have a hard time distinguishing between those two things? We do, don't we? We often confuse wants with needs. But God does not lack the ability to distinguish between our wants and our needs. He knows what all of our needs are. He knows what all of our wants are. Now, does God often supply all of our wants or some of our wants? He certainly does that, right? Do we, do we need vehicles? No, we don't really need them. Humanity seemed to get along for roughly, I don't know, 6,000 years before we had vehicles. We really don't need vehicles, do we? Do we need the houses that we live in? We don't need those. See, what I need is a tent, basically. Is it not true that you and I own hundreds or thousands of things that we do not really need and that God often supplies all of our wants or a lot of our wants and He does so lavishly? Our houses, our cars, our lavish foods, our dinners, the lavish closets that we enjoy, all of the abundance that He has provided. He provides a lot of our wants, but doesn't provide all of our wants. And He hasn't promised to provide for our wants, but He's promised to provide for our needs. And He knows the difference between the need and the want. And he also knows that the things that we want are not necessarily the things that we need. And he sometimes knows that the things that we want are what we need. And he's provided, he promised to provide for our needs, not our wants. The second thing I want you to notice is that the Apostle Paul is not promising here ease for Christians. Is it true that Christians sometimes suffer need? They do. Is it not true that sometimes Christians go without and suffer affliction and face hard times? Is Paul promising that no Christian will ever, who gives will ever face difficult times financially? That's not the promise. But the promise is that God knows what you need and everything that you need, He will provide. Now, there will come a time when God determines that He wants to take you home and He will no longer provide for you food and drink and oxygen. He will determine that that's the case. And He will say, you no longer need that. I'm taking it from you, He will take it from you, and you will go home to be with Him. But until that time, we have the promise from God that He will provide for all of our needs. Not necessarily wants, but our needs. And it's not a promise of ease. He's not saying it's going to be smooth skating from here on out. You'll never have any affliction. You'll never have any difficulty. You'll never have any downturn. You turn, you're never going to lose anything. You're never going to face tough times. That's not what Paul is describing. 
Remember earlier in the text, back earlier in chapter 4, Paul said, I know what it means to go without, right? And to be hungry and to suffer want. Paul knew what it was to face real need and to experience that need and then to see a gift like the one that the Philippians gave come in and to meet that need. Paul knew what that was like. He will supply all of your needs. Now, is Paul describing physical needs or spiritual needs? Now, some people say this just applies to heaven. This is just the future, the not the here and now, nothing physical, nothing here on earth. Just in heaven, God will meet all of our needs, and they're all spiritual needs. Is that what Paul's describing? It's not. Paul is describing the needs of the here and now. Because that was what was on and had to have been on the minds of anybody who gives. The same thing that I wrestled through and probably any faithful giver, anybody who's ever given to the Lord has ever wrestled through. You have to wrestle through the issue. If I give, are my children going to go without? Am I not going to be able to meet ends, make ends meet? Am I not going to be able to meet my obligations or my goals? If I give, am I going to suffer some need as a result of that? And the answer to that question is no. And that's what Paul's telling the Philippians. You don't have to worry about whether or not God is going to meet your needs. He will meet your needs when you faithfully give. He has promised and he has pledged himself that he will step in and he will meet whatever lacks and make sure that you do not go without your basic necessities when you faithfully give to the Lord out of your finances. It's a promise. Now listen, you either believe that or you don't believe it. If you don't believe it, You will not give, bottom line. If you believe that, you will give. And if you believe that, you will give without ever giving a thought to that. But if you don't believe that, then you will get your check, you will deposit it, you will meet all of your needs, and you will make sure that you have and spend it. And then if, at the end of the month, I have any left over, then I will give to the Lord a little bit, a little tiny bit, just enough to keep my conscience sort of from crying out to me in the middle of the night. You either believe that or you don't. Do you believe that God is able to meet all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus? That's the promise I did not believe until I started giving. And then I found out it is easier to live on less than it is on more. I can testify to you that. It is easier to live on less than it is on more. I could stop giving and I would get behind so fast it would make your head spin. I'm convinced of that. I would never for the life of me go back to what I was in Bible college Before God did a work in my heart. Never, never, ever. You could not pay me enough. You could not entice me with all of the world's riches to go back to that. I wouldn't do it. Because I can never, you can never, ever outgive God. He will always step in and provide for all that you need. According to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God gives not out of His riches, but according to His riches. That's to say that His giving or His provision for His people always is in accordance with His riches. However rich God is, that is the lavishness with which He gives to us. Now, this is not a promise. Listen, this is not a promise that God is going to make us rich. That if God is rich, He's going to make us rich. So we're all going to enjoy financial prosperity and we're all going to have rich bank accounts and live lavishly because we're children of the King. This is not a promise of prosperity. It is a promise that, and this is the key, You only have to worry about your needs not being met when God's riches run out. But as long as God is rich in His glory, as long as He is rich, He will meet your needs. That's the idea. It's not that God is going to make you rich. It is that He is rich. And out of His riches, according to His riches, He has that ability to meet your need. So it really is not telling us we're going to be rich. It is telling us we can have confidence in God's ability to step in and to meet our needs. We are never going to tax the storehouses of heaven. Never. Could never do that, no matter what your need is. God has the power and the resources and the ability to step in and supply it. 
and to make sure that you do not lack any basic need. And it is for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not for unbelievers. It's not for unbelievers. Now, do unbelievers give to God? They do. And I could actually stand up here because I've read the books of unbelievers who will... I have a, I have a book on, the sh- on my shelf in my office, in a little business section, a collection of books like uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and all those other really good books that are full of garbage. I have a few of those books and, and one of them, well, I can actually point to several of them, Napoleon Hill being one, Todd Barnhart being another, where these guys who give... Ad- ad- um, <clears throat> let me start that sentence over again. These guys who give investment advice and life coaching, guys like Tony Robbins and Os Guinness and all, all those guys, will say to you, you need to tithe off of your money. You need to give 10% of it away to charity. Give it to the Red Cross or PETA or Save the Whales or Greenpeace or something. Find some nonprofit. They're never thinking in Christian terms. Find some nonprofit and give 10% of your money away because you will find that, that something, there's this law of the universe, this unspoken law of the universe that will sort of roll it in back upon you and more will come back than you ever saw go out and you'll just find that uh, this, uh, this unalterable law of the universe of sowing and reaping will come your way and make you prosperous. Listen, even pagans understand the benefits of giving from their money. Does God bless pagans who give? Sure He does. And He blesses pagans who don't give. But this promise is to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have acknowledged their sin and repented of their sin and placed their faith in the Savior, those have the promise that because you are in Christ, because you are so inseparably united to Jesus Christ on the basis of faith, that God will step in and He will meet your needs. His riches are your riches. His riches are your riches and they are available to you in Christ. Now, when you sit back and you ponder all of that and just the magnitude of that promise, then verse 20, the praise from the giver to God is the most natural thing in the world. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Who could not say with me, verse 20, after looking at verse 19, when I give to the Lord, here's the blessings that I know. I know that out of the abundance that the Lord has given to me, he calls me to give some back to him. So the Lord provides all this for me. And then he says, give some back to me. And I give some back to him. And he says, now I'm going to bless you for giving more than the person that I'm going to bless for receiving. And then we give back to the Lord and he blesses us for giving what he already gave back to, what he already gave to us. And then we get the benefit and the blessing and the eternal reward and the treasures in heaven for only giving what he already gave to us. Isn't that amazing? And then we have the promise. No matter what happens, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory both now and forever. Amen. What believer can now say that? In looking at the blessing of giving, in looking at the provision that God has given, that is the most natural conclusion to a section on giving. And it really demonstrates what the motive in giving is and what the motive of the recipient should be, and that is the glory of God. So no matter who gives, and no matter what they give, and no matter who receives the giving or the blessing, Paul was the recipient, the Philippians had sent the gift, and the gift itself was for the glory of God, which is the motivation for all things. And so as Christians, we are consumed by the glory of God. Our motive is the glory of God. Our goal is the glory of God. And it's not that He lacks glory and we give to Him glory by giving, but by faithfully using what He has entrusted to our hands, and by giving back to Him a worship and a sacrifice and a praise, We manifest His glory and we make His name great. And that is what giving glory to God is. We manifest His glory, we display His grace, and we make much of God in the presence of His people and before all of creation. 
So the person who gives, when we give, we give in order that God may be glorified. We don't deserve any credit for our giving. That's why there's no names engraved up here on the pulpit of faithful givers over the years. And we don't have a 10,000 club. People give 10,000 or more every year. We don't have wings of buildings dedicated or named after people. We don't have monuments. We don't have bricks with your name on it or anything like that. Why do we not do that? Who deserves all of the glory? Not 99.9%, but who deserves all of the glory for every gift that we give? God does. Why is that? He gave it to us to begin with. That's what David said. From your hand and back to you, we have given to you. We've just become the channel through which the funds have come from God to God. And so who gets all of the glory and deserves all of the glory and the praise for our giving? It is our God and Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, our triune, magnificent God who deserves all of the glory. Because we have nothing that we have not first received. And so we give to God. We give to God secretly. We don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. We don't uh, blow a trumpet. We don't have a coughing spasm as we're dropping our money in the offering box. We don't do anything to draw attention to ourselves. And we ought not to do that. Why? Because it's an act of worship and we are seeking to honor God and to give God glory and to demonstrate to Him we believe your promises, we trust you, we love you, we rest upon you, and everything that we have comes from you to us and back to you. And He is glorified in that. Now, today is our Consecration Sunday. I have intentionally not connected the messages that we've been doing in the book of Philippians at the end of chapter 4 as we've worked our way through and finished this book. I have intentionally not mentioned Consecration Sunday in connection with this passage. The reason for that is I didn't want any of us in our minds to think that, number one, the reason we're going through Philippians 4 is because we're trying to raise money for a new facility. Nobody can make that charge. We actually planned a Consecration Sunday in connection with finishing up the book of Philippians, which we've been in for over a year. So I haven't made that connection, and now we have to because we're going to take up an offering. This is our Consecration Sunday. So we have to ask ourselves, what is consecration and what does it look like? We've looked at all of the blessings and the benefits that come and the promises of God to the giver and the glory of God that comes as a result of the gifts that we give. What does it mean to have a consecrated life and a consecrated heart before the Lord? Back in First Chronicles 29, which we read at the beginning of our service this morning, you saw David after he had displayed everything that he had given and announced what he was giving to the temple because of his passion and his delight in the temple of his God. He said to him now, and he offered the challenge to the people, who then among us is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? See, David understood a fundamental and foundational principle that God's people do not give to God with the right heart and the right motives as a right expression of themselves unless they have first given of themselves to God. Or sorry, given themselves to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that the churches in Macedonia first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us in the offering of the gift. So here's the order in which we give. We give first and foremost ourselves to the Lord. We lay ourselves on the altar, so to speak. We give ourselves to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. And all that I have belongs to you. And the consecrated or the given heart will give to the Lord. You do not have to tell a consecrated person to give any more than you have to tell a living person to breathe. You don't have to instruct living people to breathe. They just breathe out of the net. That's the natural result of what they do as a result of being living. You don't have to tell a consecrated individual, somebody who's given themselves to the Lord. You don't have to tell them to give. You don't instruct them to give. You just have to give them an opportunity and they will give. 
So you give first yourself to the Lord, and then you give of yourselves to the Lord. And every act of giving is that way. Every act of giving, however small, is an expression that says, Lord, I belong to you, and so everything I am and everything I have belongs to you. What do you want from me? And here is my gift to you. So in order to do this, you have to, number one, be a believer. And this is going to sound much like a communion service. Second of all, you have to be somebody who has given themselves to the Lord in his service and before him on his altar. So that you look at everything that you have and you say, Lord, it doesn't belong to me. I'm just a steward over all of it. You could take all of it away. And as long as I have Christ, I will be content. You could take all of this. So, Lord, what do you demand of me? What do you want from me? What can I give to you? I I lay it all out before you, and I will give to you whatever it is that I can do so with joyfulness and with thanksgiving as a rejoicing of my heart before God as an act of worship. So we're going to have a second, actually more than a second, a couple minutes, where I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray quietly like we do before we partake of communion. And you can consecrate yourself to the Lord. Give yourself to the Lord. And then if the Lord, if you have determined to give as part of Consecration Sunday, we're going to pass the plate and we are going to... Uh, then I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to pass the plate and then we're going to take that back in the office and uh, the stewards and one of the elders is going to count that offering and then we we're going to sing while they're counting and then we're going to announce at the end what God has chosen to give through us as people. So I give you a chance now. Bow your heads before the Lord for a time of private and personal consecration and then I will close us in prayer. Our Father, everything we have comes from You. You're the Maker of all things and the Giver of every good gift. We have received nothing that we we have nothing that we have not first received from You and from Your hand. And so, everything that we can give to You, we give from Your hand back to You. We thank You that we have the privilege, we have the abundance, we have the means, and we have the grace to offer to You that which pleases You. We thank You that we can come together before You as Your people and give ourselves to You on the altar, so to speak. We know that you know our hearts and you search and you try our hearts. And Father, it is out of our delight and our cheerfulness and our gratitude as an act of worship that we offer to you today. Anything you are pleased to give to us, to give back to you, we know that you will be honored in it. We pray that you would use it. We pray that you would bless it. And we pray that you would receive now from us that which pleases you is a sacrifice and a sweet-smelling aroma before you. Thank you that you are good. Thank you for your abundant provision. We bless and we praise your holy and perfect name today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.